harmonize like that all the time. Now, <laughs> well, that was good. Enjoyed that very much. Turn with me uh, to John chapter 4. While you're turning, I'll just say a big welcome to those visiting with us today. We're glad you're here and uh, pray that God will bless you through the ministry of His Word, which is the main focus of worship. John chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6 for this morning. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. In the year 27 A.D., John the Baptist was put in prison, thrown into prison, for confronting King Herod about his sin with his divorced wife, Herodias, who had been the wife of his his brother, Philip. But Herod was afraid to put him to death because he was a man of God and He feared what the people would think if he put John to death. And so, we find all of that in Mark chapter 6, verses 17 to 20. However, Herodias, who hated John, found an opportunity for her daughter to do a lewd dance before King Herod. and, And at the end of... Of it, Herod said, I'll give you anything you want up to a quarter of my kingdom. Herodias told her to ask for the head of John the Baptist, which she did. How the religious leaders must have rejoiced to hear and see that John had been put in prison, and even more so when they learned that he had been beheaded. For John was a thorn in the side of the religious leaders, the Jews of that day. Finally, this lunatic, in their eyes, was gone. But it was very short-lived. Because Jesus' ministry began to draw more people and more attention than that of John's. We see that at the end of of chapter 3. Where Jesus' ministry began to be more, more viewed than John's was. From the view of the religious leaders, matters had not become better, 
they had become worse. And so, even though Jesus' ministry was increasing, the Jews were not aware of of who he was. Even though John announced that he was the Messiah, the one that should come, the one that should take away the sin of the world, the one whom, in whom all the prophecies lay, they did not believe it. They did not see it. They were still looking for a Messiah to appear that would take them out from under Roman bondage. Although the Pharisees themselves were friendly with Rome, For hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been waiting for and looking for a Messiah. It had been promised to them in the Old Testament scriptures and by the prophets that a great deliverer would come and free them from their enemies and that they would become then the supreme race of people on earth. We see it first prophesied in Genesis 3. Verse 15, where God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The bruising of the head of the serpent has not yet taken place. That is yet future. But it is as good as done. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, The Lord your God, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you will listen. Psalm chapter 2, Isaiah 42, Over and over again through Scripture, the, the Messiah was promised. The Jews were looking for him. But when the true Messiah came, they did not recognize who he was. He did not fit their estimation of who the Messiah would be. And even though they knew these things about the Messiah, they were looking yet for another one. All they saw in Jesus was another threat like John. A threat that would take away their power. And their position. It wasn't that the evidence wasn't clear. Josh McDowell writes, The Old Testament, written over 1,000 year period, contains nearly 300 references to the coming Messiah. All of these were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and they establish a solid confirmation of His credentials as the Messiah. Their ignorance... The ignorance of the Jews in general about the Messiah was evident. Even among those who followed Jesus. We see in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus rebukes two disciples on the road to Emmaus who did not understand that the things that had taken place must have taken place because of the scriptures. And they were regarding the Messiah He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all all that the prophets have spoken. Do you not know the prophets? This is why we need to know the scriptures. 
So that we are not ignorant of things that happen in the world and go on in the world. The ways of mankind and the ways of God. It is the scriptures that teaches us these things. He said, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? Regardless of his works or his teachings, the Jews refused to believe that that Jesus was the Messiah. However, the people were astonished at his teaching and at the works that he was doing. In fact, some of them even asked the question, Matthew chapter 12, verse 23, Can this be the son of David? They knew that the Messiah would come from David's line. They questioned it. The Jews blasphemed, claiming that his works were of the devil. In that same chapter, verse 24. They did not want the people to think that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they blasphemed him, saying that his works were of Satan. And finally, they committed the gravest sin of all in all eternity. And they murdered the Son of God by nailing him to a cross. That brings us to verse 1 of chapter 4. And Jesus learning... That the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more people than John. This is commonly called the story of the Samaritan woman. And it certainly is about this woman. But more than that, it's not just a heartwarming or a quaint fable to warm our hearts. This is a declaration Of Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. It is about Him. It is about what He did, not just this woman. Oh, what He did for her is great, because it's the same thing that He's done for us in saving us from our sin. In previous chapters, there's an interesting comparison between, with chapter 4, we see the Symbolic use of water uh, throughout these chapters. In chapter 2, if you recall, it was the water pots at the wedding. In chapter 3, it was the washing of water by the Word, uh, being born of water and of the Spirit. And now we see in chapter 4, it is water from a well. Water is symbolic through Scripture to speak of cleansing and renewal, of refreshing, and of relationship. And throughout these chapters, Jesus reveals Himself as the one who fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. The Apostle John understood the need to relate these truths to his Gentile audience who would have had little or no knowledge of Christ and the prophecies that prophesied him as the Messiah. And in the opening scene of this story of the Samaritan woman, we have the added note informing the reader that though there were baptisms being done, they were not done by Jesus himself. 
but only his disciples. And this very clearly dispels the notion that baptism is necessary for salvation. It's generally called baptismal regeneration. For if Jesus, if baptism had have been necessary for salvation, then surely Jesus would have been baptizing everyone who came to him. He did not. And neither did his disciples baptize everyone. The Jewish leaders were suspicious of Jesus as they had been of John. And like John, Jesus had an identical message. He called for repentance and confession of sin. We see it in Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the appropriate message for us in our day and age as well. For people are dying all around us. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when Jesus found out that that the Pharisees were inquiring about him. and And John's disciples were questioning him. Even though John had pointed them to him as the Messiah, Jesus withdrew from Galilee, or withdrew to Galilee, because it was not yet time that he should, in the Father's plan, that he should confront the Pharisees about himself. That doesn't happen until chapter 7 and 8, when he actually confronts the Pharisees. Now, on the way to Galilee, they passed by Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. So what you have in Israel is you have have three sections of the nation of Israel during the time of Christ. In the north, you have Galilee... Come down just a little bit to the middle and you have Samaria. And then further down you have, you have Judah or Judea. And so you have these, these three parts. And it's a, quite, a, quite a trek from Jerusalem going north to Galilee. In fact, the, the, the Jews... Many Jews would not even go to Samaria because they felt if they set foot in Samaria, they would be unclean. So they would travel by way of the, of the Jordan River and they would cross over to the, to the east side of the Jordan River and go up the side, that side of, of the Decapolis and go into and then back over into Galilee. Jesus did not do that. You may recall that uh, Samaria was the place of king, was the home of King Ahab and his notorious wife Jezebel. Their clashes with Elijah, God's prophet, were found in 1 Kings chapter 18. That all took place in Samaria. Now Samaria 
was a was a place where the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes came who were carried away into Assyrian captivity. And when they came back, the king of Assyria sent people from Assyrian towns, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sephavarim. He brought these people from these towns back into the northern kingdom area of Samaria. They were Gentiles. And they intermarried with Jews. And so the Samaritans were looked upon as half-breeds and looked down upon uh, from the people of the southern kingdom. They formed a race. And on top of this, the Samaritans were idol worshipers. It was a place of refuge for criminals who were fleeing the law. And even though there was idolatry in the land, they revered the five books of Moses, but rejected the prophets and the traditions of the Jews. We see that we'll see that very clearly as we go through this. In the Jewish mind, these things were irreconcilable differences. They were regarded as. Samaritans were regarded as the worst of the human race. Now I want you to notice the phrase in verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. The King James, the old King James says he must needs go through Samaria. He had to go. Samaria was not exactly on the way to Galilee from Judea. The, the simplest route would have been, even, even staying within the bounds of Samaria, would have been to follow the Jordan River up to, Gal- to Galilee, uh, to the Sea of Galilee. That would have been low land. It would have been easy traveling. But instead, Jesus went into Samaria through the main road through Samaria, which would have been very hilly, very mountainous, very dangerous. This phrase tells us that Jesus, who was always in communication with his heavenly father, clearly understood That it was the Father's will for him to go through Samaria. Think of the countless missionaries who have gone to places in the world, places that were dangerous, places that were uncharted, places that no one had gone before, places where They suffered and died. But they had to go there because they believed it was the Father's will to go. A few years ago, a man by the name of John Allen Chow, 27 years old, went to an island off of the coast of India that was said to be a forbidden island. Island by the Indian government. It was off limits. 
He went there to take the gospel to a tribe of people who were living on the island. Many people had gone to the island before him and all of them, most of them, were killed by this tribe of people. Chow was reported on the news as being an adventure seeker. But really, he was a missionary. And he went to the island to take the gospel. In fact, the organization that Chow was connected to said of him, quote, John was a gracious and sensitive ambassador of Jesus Christ who wanted others to know of God's great love for them. John had to go to the island, even though it meant that he would lose his life. Is that an Iram Judson? No, it was John Payton. It was John Payton was on the ship and they got to the island of Vanuatu. They said, if you go there, you'll die. They're cannibals over there. His statement was, we died before we ever left England. Jesus had to go through Samaria. There were people there that in God's sovereign plan had to know the truth of the Messiah and his work of salvation. Someone has said, oh, to have a heart like Jesus, one that hears and obeys without hesitation, procrastination, or argumentation. Now look at the little words had to, or you may have the word must or must needs, depending on which translation you have. It's the Greek word deo. It means to bind or tie together. And so it is often used or it's often translated by the English word must. It speaks of an inner compulsion to act or speak. Something that's inside that cannot be held at bay. It is the voice that cannot be silent. It is the help that cannot be restrained. He had to. There was an inner constraint in the heart of the Son of God to go where the Father sent Him and to accomplish His will. Jesus said, I do nothing of my own authority. I do, I can do nothing on my own. I seek the will of Him who sent me, not my own will. Would that we all would think that way. The Spirit, the Spirit was blowing wherever He wills, and He was going to blow through Samaria. The disciples of Jesus were learning that true ministry was, though, was, was through the leading of the Holy Spirit. True ministry is through the leading of the Holy Spirit. A lot's done today in our world in the name of ministry. But much of it is not done by the leading of the Spirit. Jesus always was led by the Spirit. He always did that which was pleasing and what he heard from the Father.
So he came on his journey through Samaria to a town, it says, called Sychar. Now on the map today, this is the little village of Askar. In the Old Testament, it was the city of Shechem. And you'll recall how that the men of Shechem, uh, or the, the king's son, violated Dinah, uh, the brothers of J- Jacob, Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And you'll recall the slaughter that took place at Shechem as uh, the Israelites went through and killed all the men after they had agreed to be circumcised and become part of them. Shechem was, Shechem or Sychar was located on the slope of Mount Ebal. It means that Shechem literally means a shoulder or a ridge. This was the land that, that Joseph gave or that, uh, Jacob gave to Joseph. And when they left Egypt, they took Joseph's bones and they buried him at Shechem or at Sychar. There were two mountains there. One was Mount Gerizim and the other was Mount Ebal. Sychar was on the slope of Mount Ebal, which faced Mount, Mount Gerizim. And there was a, there was a curse that was placed upon Mount Ebal and blessing upon Mount Gerizim. Gerizim was the place that the Samaritans said was the true place to worship. We find the woman saying that to Jesus in her dialogue with him at the well. Joseph was buried there in a portion of land that was given to him by his father Jacob, who bought it from the king or the king's son that had come from that Assyrian, in that Assyrian captivity. And so the Lord is near Sychar and he is tired. He's been traveling. They've had nothing to eat that we know of because it says he sent his disciples away to buy food. We'll get into that next week. The point that we want to make here is that Jesus was human. He got tired. He hungered. He thirsted. He was a human being. But he was also God. He was a divine human being, a sinless one, yet suffered all the things that human beings suffer. So he could hardly find, if you think about where, he, what he's, where he's been, what's happened to him, Jesus could hardly find two minutes to put together for anything because of the crowds that gathered around him and because they pressed on him. And even if the crowds weren't there, his disciples were constantly asking him questions. Perhaps he thought, if Peter asked me one more question, 
I can just see Peter asking the questions over and over and over. There's nothing that brings mental fatigue more than ministering to the needs of people. Jacob's well was there. And he stopped to refresh himself at the well. All of this was prearranged by the Father. Listen, any time that you go out into the world, any time you're, you're rubbing shoulders with people or someone comes along your way, it's prearranged. I was in my office this past week. And as I often do, I hear things outside. And so I stood up. I looked and there was a car in the parking lot. And there was a fellow sitting in the car. I ain't paying attention to it because that happens all the time. People stop in this parking lot. You'd be surprised how many cars stop right here in the parking lot to talk on the phone or to meet somebody. It just goes on all the time. So I didn't pay much attention to it. But then I heard voices outside the door. A voice. And so I stood up and this guy that had been in the car was at, at, the, in, at the entrance there. And all of a sudden he turned around and walked and went back to his car. And sat down in the car. So I thought, well, maybe he changed his mind about something. I didn't know. And in just a little bit, I heard, heard him coming and he came inside. So I, as I always do, I stood up and walked out to the, to the entrance there. And this fellow came in and he started telling me about his wife who had, who'd had cancer and he was on hard times and, and, uh, hadn't been working and was supposed to go back to work next week and, and it went on and on and, and, uh, there was nothing, I had nothing to help him really with, with that regard, but I thought, Lord, you didn't send this fellow here just so that I could tell him that we didn't have any way to help him exactly. And so I, I just started talking about Jesus and why Jesus came. And he's, he never said a word. He's listening. It's very quiet. I finished, I finished what I was going to say and, and I, I said, let me pray for you. And so I prayed for him and he was very polite. He understood, he said, uh, but appreciated the prayer. You see, you just don't know. The people that you meet, that you that come your way, that are thrown in your path, they don't happen by mistake. This is all planned out by the Father. He covers all of that in His plan. That's why Jesus had to go to Samaria. I want you to notice the the word well. This was Jacob's well. It says in verse 6, Jacob's well was there. Why is it called Jacob's well? Well, because Jacob was a digger of wells. And he dug wells in many places that he went. This well at Sychar was one of them. 
Now I'm going to jump to verse 11 and 12 because I want you to see that there are two words, different words that are used for the word well. In verse 6, it says Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting beside the well. That's that's the Greek word pege, pege, pege. It means it means a spring of running water. Now, when I think of a well, especially one that is <clears throat> has been digged out of the ground, I think of just a, a hole that goes down into the ground, water seeps into it, and you draw water out of it. But this word says that this was a spring, a spring of water. Now, spring has water flowing out of it. Notice verses 11 and 12. The woman said to her, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. The well is deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons? You have a different word here. This word is the word ferrar. It means a deep hole in the earth or a cistern that has been carved out of the earth. So you put the two words together. By the way, this well, Jacob's well, is approximately 100 feet deep. Can you imagine digging a 100, 100 foot deep hole? Even now, well, we can do it easily with excavating equipment. Jacob didn't have any excavators, just his two hands and his two arms. But he dug this well, and he not only dug the hole that went into the earth, but he carved out in the earth a cistern where a spring of water was flowing. And that cistern filled up and held the water so that people could come and draw out of it. I submit to you that these two words describe the Lord Jesus Christ and the water of life that he has. He is not only the well, but he is the cistern as well. He is the spring of water. Did he not say, he who believes in me, who drinks the water that I give him, will have life springing up? It's about six, it's about the sixth hour. The Jewish day started at 6 a.m. And so this would be about noon where the sun is high in the sky. He hadn't eaten. And so he sent his disciples on into the city to buy some food. Perhaps as they had gone, the Lord Leaned, sat down and leaned back on the stones, stone wall of the well. Maybe he closed his eyes to rest 
It wasn't long after that he heard footsteps. Someone was coming. And it was this woman. This woman from Samaria. A woman who had had a life filled with sin and problems and hurts and difficulties. A woman who needed to know that there was water different from the water she would draw from that well. If this passage teaches us anything about the life of faith, it is that we should always be ready to meet people at their greatest point of need. And their greatest need is to drink of the water of life. And thus satisfy the craving of their parched soul. Jesus said it in verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. But the water I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, you have that water as a believer in Christ. You have that water. It's springing up. You can give it to others. So that they too can drink and have life and believe. This is a fabulous passage. And it's going to take us a few weeks to get through it all. But next week, we'll see the woman coming and we'll see what happened to her. Who she was and why Jesus spoke to her the way that he did. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. For the word, we thank you for the ministry of it. We pray, Lord, that you would use it. Uh, This today has been just a lot of background, really. Next week we get into this passage in a more personal way. And I, I am sure, no doubt, that we will be recalled to our own memory, people whom we know, who, like this woman of Samaria, needed to hear the words of life and to drink from the water of life. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that and to be about your business, just simply giving a testimony of the work that you have done in us and to see that we that it can meet the needs of others as well. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.